Well, welcome to number 300 in the Life of Christ series. I checked in the first episode, it was February 2013. Some of you weren't born then, right? <clears throat> but some of us were a lot younger then. I was in, in my early 40s then, so anyway, time marches on and God has given us grace to make it this far. And I, I know this is series has caused me to grow my love for Christ. It's a great thing to study. I figure 300 messages and studying for several hours at least every time, and that's probably a couple thousand hours at least just focusing on who Christ is, and that's a, a great blessing for me to be able to do that. So thank you for that opportunity I have. We are in Luke 17. By the way, I don't know when I'm going to finish, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Luke chapter 17. We are in verses 1 to 10. We barely got started last time, but we'll try and make some more progress today. Luke 17, let me start at verse 1. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which he were, the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. Well, just to review briefly from last week, we talked about verses 1 and 2 and a little bit of verse 3. But Jesus here talks about stumbling blocks. They're going to come. These are enticements to sin. This word translated stumbling block was used of a stick over a, a trap. So an animal would hit the trap and the, the trap would engage. And, and the, the animal at that point is, uh, its fate is sealed in the, in the same way that we can allow ourselves to get a, a place of temptation and we stumble and the trap is on us and we fall into sin. It is inevitable that these things are going to come in our lives. The world is full of these temptations. But Jesus' point here is, woe to him through whom they come. There will be sinful enticements, but may it never be that I would be the cause. So we want to stay far away from the possibility that we would ever cause anyone to stumble, especially as we see in Matthew, Jesus' little ones, the ones he came and died for. It's a horrible sin to cause someone to sin. And it's made worse by the fact that someone who causes a believer to stumble is attacking God himself. Uh, it it's, would be grievous if I see somebody else hurt, but if it's my child, how much more do I feel that uh, I want to protect my child? And God wants to protect his people. I read the verse last time about touching the apple of God's eye. And we don't want to be poking God in the eye by causing his little ones to stumble. Better to die a gruesome death with a millstone hung around our neck and dropped into the sea, than to fall into God's hands as one who has 
cause one of his little ones to stumble. Let's move on to some new things from verse 3. Jesus says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, be on your guard means take heed to yourselves, watch out for yourselves. I think this actually belongs with verse 2. That is, watch out that you do not become a, a stumbling block for anybody. But if your brother sins against you, Jesus says, rebuke him. That is, from Matthew, show him his fault. You, you expose it, you bring it to the light. Not to gloat over them, to, to shame them, to show that you're superior to them, that you are more godly than they are, but because we want to bring them to a place of fellowship, uh, renewed fellowship with God and with the church. So we can prayerfully, lovingly, lovingly reason with them from Scripture. We want to be able to show them a a chapter and verse for the things that we are rebuking them on. It's not our preference, but what God's word says. And Jesus continues, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins, he repents, forgive him. And then we we might ask the question, what is repentance? We talk about this quite a bit in various forums. Repentance has the idea of turning from sin and then endeavoring by God's grace to walk in righteousness. So it's not just being sorry for something. It's not just confessing your sins, although that's part of repentance, but we also want to make sure that repentance has the desire to move forward in righteousness. Not just feeling sorry for yourself, not just saying, oh, woe is me, what a horrible sinner I am, but trying to move ahead, do the right thing. Another question we might ask, if he repents, forgive him, a simple phrase, but we ask, what is repentance? Then we ask, what is forgiveness? And R.C. Sproul said it well. He says, forgiveness in biblical terms means to hold a sin against a person no more. Forgiveness in biblical terms means to hold a sin against a person no more. We see God's forgiveness in this way in Isaiah 43.25. God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is omniscient, right? But in a sense... He forgets our sins. He doesn't actually forget them. God can't forget anything. But in terms of the relationship that has been broken by sin, God has put that uh, behind his back, or he's drowned it in the, in the depths of the sea. We have a similar kind of idea in 1 Corinthians 13.5, where Paul says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. You can imagine somebody with a little journal, and somebody sins against them. They write it down. Sins again, writes it down. That's taking into account a wrong suffered. You, you have that so you can mull over it. You can remind yourself of how angry they made you and how much they hurt you. But Paul says love doesn't do that. Love takes those things and forgets them. <clears throat> that's what forgiveness is. And Luke 17 verse 4 says, If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And this sounds much like Matthew 18 you know this, verses 21-22, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and for, I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, some commentators will say that Paul or Peter here might be trying to be <clears throat> extra spiritual because some rabbis would say, I can forgive you three times. It's like three strikes, said baseball back in Jesus' day. You know, three strikes, you're out. Three sins against me, I don't have to forgive you after that. So, Peter doubles that and adds one. I'll forgive him seven times. What does he think, Jesus? And Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, 
but up to 70 times 7. Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying that we keep a list, and when we get to 491, then we're off the hook in forgiveness. But he's saying, as much as someone sins against you, you forgive them. Same thing in Luke 17. In Luke, it says that seven times a day sinned against you, not 490 in total, but seven times in a day. And again, it's not a literal count. It's not as though you keep a list and oh, that's the eighth time that you've said something unkind to me today. So for the rest of the day, I can hold this sin against you. Maybe we'll start in the morning fresh. Now, having said this, Jesus says we forgive somebody seven times a day. But if someone does sin against me seven times in a day, I might have a talk with him about how to conquer that sin. It's not like we just say, oh, well, I'm going to forgive you and forgive you but I'm going to leave you in that state. <clears throat> they might have some issues with repentance. They might have some int- uh, in- issues with stumbling blocks. How can I help them so they're not sinning against me seven times a day? Because if they're sinning against me seven times a day, they're sinning against somebody else perhaps even more. So we want to help somebody in their sin. If they have a, a besetting sin, a sin that comes again and again and again, we want to help them. But in terms of our heart attitude towards them, we keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. It's loving to forgive, but it's not loving to watch somebody stumble and fall time after time after time. Well, Jesus here says, if he repents, forgive him. And we again might ask, how important is forgiveness? Well, remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 14 and 15. He says, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So if we don't forgive, God will discipline us. He will make our lives a kind of torment. And if you are struggling in your Christian life, it may be discipline from God for an unforgiving heart. That's one thing you might ask yourself. If you're in a, in a trial, if you're, if you're struggling, ask yourself, am I forgiving others? Am I loving them with the love of Christ? Uh, forgiving them as Christ has forgiven me. And if you are not, that might be a reason for God disciplining you in that time of your life. If we are truly saved, God doesn't undo our forgiveness in Christ. It's not as though if I don't forgive somebody, then God says, okay, I'm going to undo all that atonement from Christ and you're now back, you're unsaved. But if we don't forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ, it hinders our walk with God. I think you know Psalm sixty six eighteen. If I regard wickedness in my heart, what does it say? The Lord will not hear. So if God seems like he's not hearing our prayers, it may be because we are regarding wickedness in our heart, in this case, an unforgiving spirit. Matthew 18, verse 35. Jesus says that we must forgive our brother from our heart. So it's not some surface level. I think we've all probably... Somebody asks for our forgiveness, and we smile, oh, sure, glad to do that. Inside, we might be seething still. It's easy to say, I forgive you. It's harder to forgive somebody. And so you can act like everything is fine, but only you know if there's a root of bitterness, if you've truly forgiven that person. And there may be times where you, you have actually forgiven them, but something brings it up again, and you remember it, and it hurts you again, and you get angry again, you get bitter again, and you have to repent yourself again and forgive them again. And so forgiveness is not always just a closed door. Sometimes something will creep out of that door, and you need to forgive again. It would be nice if you could sort of weld that door shut, never have it bother you again, but it does 
to be honest, happen, where the bitterness can come back. And a good question to ask yourself is, what comes to your mind when you think about someone who has sinned against you? Are you angry? Do you hate them? Are you bitter against them? Or do you have mercy towards them, uh, compassion? Do you, do you love them? Do you pray for them? If I remember somebody who, who hurt me, you, God forgive me, but God also work in their hearts that they might not hurt anybody else in that way themselves again. Well, there's many more things I could say about forgiveness. The scriptures are full of forgiveness. From the beginning, Genesis 3, forgiveness for the sin, and all the way through to the end that the saints are rejoicing in the forgiveness, the, the blood of the Lamb that was slain for our forgiveness. But let me just give a few more thoughts about rebuking, repenting, and forgiving just from this little verse here. In terms of rebuking, we need to have godly wisdom when it comes to rebuking a sinning brother. How many of you played whack-a-mole? Been whack-a-mole, you go to the, the fair and you got this, these little moles come up and you hit them with a little uh, padded mallet. It's easy for, especially those of us who are more mature in Christ, to play whack-a-mole with our, our children or, or those in the church. A little sin comes up, wham. You got a verse ready. Uh, let no one wholesome word come out of your mouth. Wham! And that becomes your your job, is, is you're the official whack-a-mole uh, mallet in the church. We don't want to be like that. That's censorious, that's unloving, it's unkind. We don't like it. Being rebuked is hard. It's necessary, but it's hard. And if, if you're a struggling Christian, and you're trying to just walk, imagine if you had a little, a little infant, and they're trying to walk, and every time they stumble, you just knock them down and say, you can't walk. Get, why don't you be stronger? That's kind of what we can do if we are continually uh, whacking those younger brothers and sisters in Christ for their sins. We want to be encouraging them and loving them, helping them, yes, rebuking at times, but we don't want to be censorious and, and be, be known for the one who's always fi- trying to fix people. We know it's discouraging to have our sins pointed out to us again and again and again, and it's true for all of us, so remember that as you are trying to lovingly rebuke somebody. So we want to make sure that we have a more positive plan of discipleship and the other things may fall away as a person matures. If somebody is a fairly immature believer, uh, they have trouble with their tongue, just to pick an example. Well, instead of rebuking them every time they do something, maybe have a, a special Bible study you go through with them, not just about their tongue, but about other things as well. And as they grow in Christ, some of those things will fall away. We also want to remember as we rebuke, Galatians 6.1, and Paul says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, the idea of being caught in a trap again, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So be gentle with them. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So as we rebuke, we also want to be looking at ourselves as well. Is there anything in this sin that attracts me that would make me want to fall into it as well? And be careful yourselves that you will not be trapped as this other person was. With regard to repentance, we see somebody, we want them to repent for their sin. For our part, we want to make sure that we're the kind of person who repents. And we can be an example to our children, for example, in this way. Don't let them think mommy and daddy can get away with sin, but they can't. When your, your child sins, we want to discipline them. We say, don't do that. You need to ask forgiveness. We're very... Um, careful about instructing others to repent, aren't we? But when it comes to us, it's easy. Well, I was having a hard day. Uh, it, we want to make excuses for ourselves 
we want to make, in some cases, maybe maybe not like this. I'm the only one who's like this probably, who, who has struggled with this. To fix everybody else, but for me, I want mercy. I want the gentleness towards me. But anybody else, it, it's easy to require full repentance and immediate obedience. But if your children see you ask God for forgiveness and you've sinned against them as well, they should hear you ask for forgiveness of them. We need to ask forgiveness from the one who we've sinned against. And if our children see us sin, they should see us what? Repent. Uh, It's easy sometimes for me to feel like, well, I'm the king of my house. I'm the master of my, my house. So... Everybody has to do what I want, and they can't... If, if they see me in any way humble, if they see me repent, that makes me look weak. But that's what we need to do. It makes us look strong, and we can repent and show that we need a Savior as well. If our children see us sinning without repentance, what does that teach them? They don't need to repent. They don't need a Savior. But if we say, the daddy sinned, mommy sinned, uh, I need to ask God for forgiveness. They hear us ask God for forgiveness. We ask them for forgiveness. I, I sh- I've sinned against you. You shouldn't have seen that. I should have done that. It's my fault. I need a Savior. Daddy's a sinner. And I need to repent every day. I need Christ's forgiveness every day. And so do you. And you can also find a good Savior in Christ when you run to him. So let's be examples, not just in holiness, but also in repentance. Show our children what it's like to repent from their sins. And asking forgiveness can really sometimes take more humility than forgiving. It's easy to be forgiving sometimes to say, oh, yes, I forgive you, because you love somebody. You want to restore that relationship. But it can be really hard to say, I'm sorry. It can be hard to say, I have sinned against you. You have to really come in on your knees, figuratively speaking, and say, I have sinned against you. You have to take yourself down many notches to say, that was wrong, and I please forgive me for that. So... Let's make sure that we are more eager to repent than to have people repent toward us. And then one last comment on this verse. Uh, regarding forgiving others, what can we think about when we're forgiving others? Well, first of all, when you're tempted to not forgive, remember how many times God has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13. Paul says we are to bear with each other and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So our standard for how we are to forgive is not the pastor, not our friend, not, not our, our most righteous earthly uh, saint, but it is Christ himself and, and God the Father. They are the examples of forgiveness. So if I ever think I've forgiven too much, you can't do that, can you? God has forgiven us much more than we deserve. And so even if somebody sins against you horribly, it's only a fraction of the depth of your sin against God. And so if we decide we are not going to forgive somebody, that is an act of great pride. It's an act of great wickedness. What you're saying, in effect, is that God may forgive the sin, but I will not. How can we say that we don't need to be as forgiving as God? How can we say that we have some right to not forgive somebody when Christ himself has forgiven us completely and fully, eternally? 
Another thing to remember as we're forgiving others, first of all, remember how God's forgiven you. Second, let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. Romans 12, verse 19. Paul says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We want to get back at somebody when they sin against us. We want to make sure they suffer as much as we've suffered, or even more. But Matthew Henry says this, God keeps an account, there he mentions Deuteronomy 32-34, because he is the judge, and vengeance is his. But we must not, lest we be found stepping into his throne. So if we don't forgive others, we're trying to be God. If we try to judge others, try to get back at others, take our revenge, we are also trying to be in God's place. We're trying to take his throne as the judge, and that is not our place. A third thing to remember is that if you have an unforgiving heart, you may well question whether you are forgiven yourself. If day after day, month after month, year after year, you can't forgive somebody, you might ask yourself, has Christ truly forgiven me? And a fourth point, sin isolates Christians from each other. If you sin against me, if I sin against you, that, that's a break in fellowship. And when we don't forgive, it's, it's like uh, something floating in the ocean. They tend to drift apart. And it, that isolation grows as, as the, the sin continues to separate Christians. And we want to restore a sinning brother, as Jesus says in Matthew 18. When you, when you go to them and they, they repent, you have won your brother. You have, you've connected with them again. You've restored fellowship. We don't want to drive those who sin against us into further despair and isolation. And then we, we add to the guilt of the sin the pain of separation. This person, hopefully, if they're a Christian, already is sorry. They have repented of their sins. They feel the pain that they've sinned against you, and you feel like you want to pile on and make them feel guilty about that and feel guilty forever. We don't want to add to their guilt of the sinning itself the continued guilt of separation. We want to restore that brother so they can feel the joy of fellowship again. And there's a lot more that we could say about forgiveness, but we need to move on. Let's move on to verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. We see here the power of faith. The first two sections in Luke 17 we've, we've seen refer to our relationship with others, that is, stumbling blocks and forgiving and so forth. The last two parts have to do with our relationship with God. First of all, we have faith in God's power. The second is we have great humility as God's servant. Now, verse 5, it says, The apostles said to the Lord, and in Luke, this term apostles always refers to the twelve. And you might ask yourself, is, is this a disconnected story, or is this verse 5 related to verse 4 and, and the previous verses? It's hard to say for sure, but I think maybe the apostles knowing how hard it is to forgive and how easy it is to be a stumbling block, feel the weight of that duty on them, and they say, Lord, increase our faith. They might remember back not too long before this when they, some of them were waiting for Jesus and Peter, James, and John to come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember a demon-possessed boy was there, and they couldn't cast out the demon. And there was the boy's father, who cried out to Jesus in Mark 9.24, and 
Jesus talks about belief and, and having strong faith. And the boy cried out, the boy's father rather cried out to Jesus and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. So this father in Mark 9 had some small faith, but he needed more faith, help my unbelief. I've got faith, I've got unfaith, I've got belief, I've got unbelief. Help me get rid of my unbelief and increase my faith. These apostles here in Luke 17, they know their faith is weak and they need the Lord to increase it. They know they can't get great faith by sheer force of will. They can't just grit their teeth and and muscle through these times of little faith. They need God's help. I just mentioned the story of the apostles trying to cast out the demon from the boy. Matthew 17 has it this way. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? That is the demon. And Jesus said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. So in Matthew 17, it's mustard seed faith moving a mountain. Here in Luke 17, it's mustard seed faith uprooting a mulberry tree. Later, Jesus cursed the fig tree in Matthew 21, and Jesus said, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, that is, he cursed the fig tree and it it withered, but even if you say to this mountain, it uh, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Again, we have uh, small faith casting mountain into the sea. Now, this mustard seed here is the smallest seed known to the Jews, and Jesus uses it more than once. I've already read about the mustard seed faith from Matthew 17 and, and Mark 9. But in Matthew 13, he presents a parable of the kingdom. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So the issue here with our faith is not so much the smallness of the faith, but it's a small faith that has great growth potential. It's not the quality of their, of the quantity of their faith, but rather the quality of their faith. You maybe were to take a stone, hold it in one hand, and a mustard seed in the other. I hold hold it up. You probably can hardly see the mustard seed, but the mustard seed, if I plant it and it gets water and sunshine and so forth, it's going to grow and grow and grow and become like a tree. And the rock is going to stay a rock. It's not going to grow at all. It's the, the nature of the faith. You know, this hard, stony faith isn't going to grow, but uh, a mustard seed faith that has the growth potential will grow as God gives the growth. Jesus refers to this mulberry tree. Maybe he was standing right next to one. He points to a mulberry tree. I don't know much about mulberries, but the trees apparently have really extensive, deep root systems. They're very hard to pull up. Jesus says, if you had this small faith, you could say, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And Matthew talks about this faith. It says, nothing will be impossible to you. Now, some have have taken this as a, a blank check, but it's not a blank check. It's not an absolute promise. God doesn't want us to do these sort of strange miracles. Imagine if you woke up one day and Mount Rainier wasn't there. Where's Mount Rainier? Oh, somebody dumped it in the Puget Sound because somebody had really great faith. That's not the kind of thing that God wants us to do. But it's the things that God wants us to do that he equips us to have faith for as we pray for them and ask for God's will. 
And it's not our own faith. We don't have faith in our faith, but we have faith in God's power. It's God's power that accomplishes these great things. God who is the object of our faith. And Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Not my will, not my desires. So God is not like some kind of genie doing our bidding. We must never think that God subjects his will to our own. So if we want some sort of outlandish, bizarre kind of miracle, God is not there to uh, be commanded by us. He is still the God of the universe. But we do have confidence, as 1 John 5.14 says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we'll stop there for now talking about this faith, but just remember, faith is in God, and God will do what he will do, and what he wants to do. We can ask in faith without doubting, as James says, knowing that he will accomplish what he what he will. And if he doesn't do what we want, we can be assured that he's doing what he wants, what's best for us. Well, we've looked then at the power of faith. Let's look now at the duty of discipleship. Verses 7 to 10, the duty of discipleship. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he is coming from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, that is, will not the master say to the slave, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and, eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. Now this particular story is unique to Luke. And again we ask, are these verses connected with the previous ones in a particular way? It may be that Jesus gives this story, this little parable, because he's contrasting with the Pharisees we've seen in, in previous chapters where the Pharisees are so proud. We'll see later in Luke 18 when the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. His prayers to God are actually boastings about himself. Or it may be in the context here, if you, by God's grace, have great faith and you do great miracles in Christ's name, don't let it go to your head. For all those miracles you do, you do them for the sake of Christ and as Christ's servant. Now, I find it interesting that as I read this parable, I've always seen it as an encouragement for us to have humility as we serve God. But some commentators think that this is actually, this parable is condemning the servant here for doing just the necessary work without a heart of love for his master. But I don't really see it that way. Because Jesus says in verse 10, he gives us a, a command. When you do all the things which are commanded, you say... We are unworthy slaves. So Jesus is giving this illustration to command us to do something. So he's saying, you need to have a humble heart, a humble attitude like the servants do to their masters. A couple of cultural notes. When the master says, is talking about these, when they eat, come, come immediately and sit down to eat. They don't have, didn't have chairs like we do today, but they would recline at the table. So it actually is, uh, come immediately and recline. So they would lie down on one arm and, and eat with the other hand. And he also says in verse 8, properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. That's literally, you might have a, a note in your margin saying, gird yourself. So you take your kind of long robes and tuck them into your belt so you can move more easily. 
you have a job to do. Uh, people who are reclining ungird themselves. They can, you might say, let your hair down, but they're ready to just relax. But that's not the servant's job at this point. The servant's job is to work. So he must gird himself, pick up your, your robes, tuck them in your belt so you can move unhindered and do the things that are, you're called to do. What are some lessons from this short parable here? Well, recall that we belong to God, and as Christians, we doubly belong to God. We belong to God by creation, and we belong to God by redemption. We are bought with a price, it says. So we are doubly God's servants. We owe him everything, and he owes us what? Nothing. God does not owe us anything. We are his slaves, and we have work to do. And what is our work to be like? Well, first of all, our work is to be diligent. We are to work diligently. John Calvin said, Let each of us remember that he has been created by God for the purpose of laboring and of being vigorously employed in his work, and that not only for a limited time, but till death itself. The Bible, as you know, likens the Christian life to farming, to being a soldier, to being an athlete. Those are not pastimes that you, you sit and watch. We're not spectators in the Christian life. We're not watching farmers. We're not watching soldiers. We're not watching athletes on TV. But we are to be diligent. Romans twelve eleven says, we are not to lag behind in diligence, but to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And Paul, Philippians one twenty two wants to be with Christ, but he says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So as long as Paul is in the flesh, he's going to work for Christ's sake. And then as Paul is speaking to Timothy, this is Paul's last letter. He's about to die. And he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So Timothy was to be diligent as he did the work that God had called him to do. So we work diligently as God's servants. Secondly, we are to work humbly. Work humbly. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. It was our duty to do these things. And so we can be humble in that way. And Paul never forgot this. That's why he often starts his letters, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He gloried in that state as being one of Christ's bondservants. So he was glad that he was serving Christ in that way. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 7, as he's addressing these these differences in the church in Corinth, we have these different factions. We have the Apollos faction and the Paul faction and the Peter faction. Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So if Paul is not going to put on airs and demand worship as the great apostle of Jesus Christ, who am I to think that I'm even better than Paul? Who am I to glory in my own works for Christ's sake? But focusing on who Christ is, what he's done for us, causes us to work humbly, that we've only done what we ought to have done. A third thing we are to work uh, with is to work righteously. Look at Romans 
6. Work righteously. First work diligently, work humbly, work righteously. Romans 6, and we could we can go through this whole chapter, but we don't have time for that right now. Romans 6, verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented yourselves, presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, that is, in, in your unsaved condition, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And there's more later on. So, we were slaves to sin, we live a sinful life. When we're slaves to a righteous God, we are to live righteously. So we must work diligently as servants in a righteous manner. So we work diligently, work humbly, work righteously, and then finally work expectantly. That is, we look to the reward. We expect these gifts from God. We don't deserve them, but we expect them. 1 Corinthians 3.8, as Paul has said, who is Paul, who is Apollos? He says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And in Matthew twenty five twenty one, Jesus, in the parable of the talents, says that the master said to the one who had the five talents and made them into to ten, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So we, as believers, have a kind and generous master. This master in Luke 17 was kind of a conventional master. He expected the slaves to do what the slaves do, and they are to take care of the the master. They don't eat until the master eats. They don't uh, stop working until the master is able to fully rest. But we have a different sort of master, a good, gracious one. Jesus had said earlier in Luke twelve thirty seven, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. That would be too, truly shocking in Jesus' day, to have a a master wait on the slaves, but that's the kind of Lord we have. Jesus later in Luke 22, 27, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So our Lord is a gracious Lord. He's a giving Lord. He as a rewarding Lord. That's grace. It's God is good to us, not because we deserve it. If I say, God, I worked hard for you all my life. I've, I've taught through the life of Christ 300 times, and I expect a great reward for that. Then where's grace in all that? If I deserve it, where's the grace? But God gives us good things because he's a gracious God. So we will not be able to stand before him at the, at the end and say, Lord, I deserve this. Pat yourself on the back. I deserve that that mansion that's on the very top of the hill, the one with all the, the sparkly stuff on it. That's mine because I earned it more than anyone else. Any gift we, we get, uh, 
is, is a gift from God, isn't it? We deserve hell. If God did nothing else but to keep us out of hell, that would be more than enough grace for us. But he gives us so much more. And so as we, we labor, we can look forward to that reward, but know that it is still all God's grace. While God owes us nothing, as I said earlier, he promises us everything. Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, that is, God the Father, did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In Matthew twenty five thirty four, Jesus gives this parable of the sheep and the goats, and the king says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And Jesus says in John 14, he goes to prepare a place for us. This kingdom that he has, it is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Christ. But it's also our kingdom. We will reign with Christ forever. We will be blessed by Christ forever by his grace. And so as we labor on this earth and we we have struggles, we have heartaches, we have disappointments, we have sins, we have lots of things that make the work really difficult. It's part of the, the, the curse. But we have an eye to the reward. As we work diligently and humbly and righteously, we can also work expectantly knowing that God will reward us out of his abundant grace for the work that we do for his sake. Let's close in prayer. Father, we have many encouraging words here and many difficult words as well as we think about the difficulty of forgiveness and the difficulty of repentance, the difficulty of having strong faith, even the difficulty of being humble sometimes, thinking that we are owed much from you. We pray that as we reflect on the words of Christ, that we would be those who forgive and forgive and forgive, and those who ask repentance when we do stumble and fall. Those We, we do show our repentance to our, our family, those we've sinned against. We repent before your throne. May we also be those who have great faith, not because... We ourselves are so strong or so powerful because we have, we have a great God who can do all things that he wills. And so we are merely demonstrating that you are a great God by having the kind of faith that expects great things to be done by you for your glory. And as we also see ourselves as your servants, may we walk diligently, work hard, may we walk in a humble way, knowing that you are our God and we are your servants. May we walk righteously. May we remember that we are slaves of righteousness. We're not made slaves so we might sin, but that we might become more like Christ. May we also walk expectantly as we look ahead to the glorious kingdom that you will give to us, the, the mansions we have in glory, the dwelling places we have from your hand. It's all of grace. We pray that you would give us that grace day by day as we try to serve you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.